Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, I'm Jeff Cohen. Everything you hear on WNPR, from local news and talk shows to the national programs you love, is made possible because of listener support. You make it happen. You give the radio its signal, the computer its stream, the smartphone its podcast. You make it so we can reach you wherever you are. We love that you listen, but we also need your dollars. Go to WNPR.org and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Thanks for helping out. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Women's March attracted more than a million people to Washington, D.C. after Donald Trump's presidential inauguration, and the event spurred millions more to attend satellite marches around the globe. Coming up, we'll hear from one of the organizers of the National Women's March, Linda Sarsour. She'll be in Hartford next week to speak at Trinity College. She'll tell us how momentum from the Women's March is encouraging Americans to speak out on issues that matter to them like science. Tomorrow's Earth Day, it's no coincidence that organizers chose Saturday for the March for Science. There are similar events happening across Connecticut, too. We'll hear from organizers about what they hope this march will achieve. Now, are you headed to D.C. or are marching in Connecticut tomorrow? We want to hear from you. Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, in studio with me now is Harrison Hayward. He's a coordinator for the Hartford March for Science, also a fourth-year medical student at UConn School of Medicine. Harrison, welcome to where we live. Hi there. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about the March for Science. When did uh, plans start? Was it heavily influenced by this National Women's March? So the March for Science did develop sort of in the wake of the National Women's March. Um, Right after that happened, it became clear that this kind of an event had a lot of power to motivate people and to mobilize uh, many political constituents. And so um, sort of in online posts on the Internet, um, people on forums began saying we should have a similar thing regarding science because uh, some of the political shifts taking place um, really appeared to imbue science with a certain partisanship that it isn't productive in terms of the scientific method. And so um, it really just overnight caught momentum. And by the following morning, uh, the national Facebook page had over 50,000 likes. Um, I made a page for the Hartford uh, March for Science as well. And that had started collecting a couple hundred likes as well. And so uh, we're very happy with how it started to develop. I mentioned you're a fourth-year medical student. Where do you have time to organize the Hartford March? <laughs> I know. It's been, a, it's been a little bit hectic, but luckily the end of medical school is a little more, uh, affords you a little more time. So personally, why does this matter to you? You know, it matters to me on a couple of different levels. Um, professionally, um, you know, med- medicine is really an evidence-based practice, and it's absolutely critical that we look at clinical data, we look at population data to determine outcomes and the efficacy of treatment. So it's very, it's a core aspect of practicing medicine and learning medicine. Um, On a personal level also, I'm one of four children and all three of my siblings are severely developmentally disabled. And so it's through advances in science, in um, cultural shifts and in medical practices that they've been able to live fulfilling lives uh, to the extent that they have. So it's, it's impacted my life and my professional life to a significant degree. 
You're the organizer. You're one of the organizers for the Hartford March. Who do you hope will be there? Is it the people in the scientific community, people who teach science? Or how do you get just regular Americans who you know, maybe they haven't thought about science in this way since they were in school? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, every demographic that you just mentioned, I hope, shows up. We absolutely hope to mobilize um, the scientists themselves, right? But this event is for more people than just those wearing white coats in laboratories. Um, science impacts absolutely everybody at every moment of every day, whether or not we realize it. And, uh, you know, take right now, for example, we're speaking, converting our, our voices into electrical signals that are being taken up in people's cars and conveyed back into sound waves. How incredible is that? But um, I think the technological ease of the contemporary day uh, has made it less easy for us to um, appreciate the magnitude that science impacts us. So we're really hoping to see uh, families and children and scientists and science enthusiasts all come out in support of this mission. This is where we live. Today we're focusing on the March for Science. It's happening tomorrow in Hartford, a bigger one in the nation's capital. Are you planning to go down to D.C. or participate in one of the four marches across the state of Connecticut? Tell us why, 860-275-7266. Um, if this is something you just are hearing about right now and maybe you're skeptical, we want to hear from you too, 860-275-7266. In studio with me is Harrison Hayward, a coordinator for the Hartford March for Science, a fourth-year medical student at UConn. School of Medicine. Um, I asked you earlier about, you know, what's the point and, and why should we be doing this or why, why people should be involved. Uh, but specifically, can you talk about um, the new administration and some of the fears that you have as someone in the scientific community? Sure. Um, the, I think there's a collection of events that took place that are clearly the stimulus for this event. Um, to name a couple specifically, there's um, gag orders, the one that happened uh, in, in January. We have uh, proposals to slash funding to the NIH, proposals to eliminate government um, organizations like the EPA. And these are just things that the scientific community holds um, in the highest regard. And it's important that we publicly fund research, we publicly fund scientific education and open communication. And so um, it, it's, it's very important that people come out uh, to march to show that they are enthusiastic about these things. Uh, someone going to the march in D.C. is a Yale student, Sarah Smaga. She's a fourth-year Ph.D. student at Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, also co-president of the Yale Science Diplomats. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Tell us about when you heard about March for Science and what do you hope it's going to accomplish? Um, I think I saw it that first night on Twitter, um, and so... You know, I was immediately excited sort of as a scientist and as someone who's really, you know, passionate about communication and advocacy. Um, and I hope that we bring all kinds of people out to the march, but especially for the scientists who come out. I hope this is their first taste of sort of, you know, getting involved and that this is the beginning of a much longer process. I mentioned that uh, you're Yale uh, fourth year PhD student. You're also a woman. Um, talk a little bit about you know your interest in science and how you see science being more inclusive. Is that something you're seeing? Um, yeah, I definitely think there's progress. Especially, um, I've been involved in a lot of efforts here at Yale to sort of broaden the inclusivity of our departments and really think about you know the practices that have been so standard and how they might affect um, how you know, people feel like they belong in the department. And so I think, you know, it's a slow process, but I think we're making 
a lot of progress. Um, I was fortunate enough to have female mentors, you know, from elementary school onward in science, and so I never sort of questioned my belonging. Uh, but I know, you know, it's really important for those of us who are scientists now to sort of get out and show other people that this is what a scientist looks like. You know, you can be a scientist, too. And then also on the line, uh, we want to take another quick call. John is calling from Hartford. Uh, John Humphreys, actually, uh, talking about roundtable on, on climate and, jo- and jobs. John, can you hear me? I can. Uh, so tell us about your interest in March for Science and what you hope it'll, it will accomplish. Sure. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, so the Connecticut Roundtable on Climate and Jobs uh, brings together labor, religious, and environmental folks uh, advocating for policies that will both protect the climate and create good jobs. And earlier this week, we held a press conference with uh, Senators Blumenthal and Murphy to promote uh, the science marches happening here in Connecticut, as well as next weekend, there's the People's Climate March in D.C. So lots of interest in this issue. And one of the things that we uh, highlight is that all the things that we need to do to protect the climate are also good for workers and communities. That the clean energy future will uh, also bring cleaner air and water to local communities and also uh, create uh, good jobs uh, all across the country. And, you know, one of the wonderful things about the People's Climate March is that the planning and organizing is really being done by this broad diversity of groups, labor, religious, and uh, civil rights and human rights, environmental justice, all recognizing uh, common interests that will sustain life. Well, thank you for letting us know. I do want to bring up, um, thank you, John, I did want to bring up the, the People's Climate March that he mentioned happening April 29th. Harrison Hayward is in studio with me. He's uh, one of the organizers for the Hartford March for Science. Um, why are these marches separate? And, and do we worry that you know we want people to be more um, uh, engaged in their communities, but is there march fatigue as well? Uh, I think that you you touch on a good point, but they're 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 separately planned, and I think that um, what's key is that the March for Science is sort of an umbrella march that covers all fields of science. We're talking about medicine, we're talking about climate research, you know, um, space research and funding, uh, et cetera. So it's not that we um, aren't focusing on the climate, but we're focusing on the climate and many other things as well. I don't think that um, people will get terribly um, March fatigued. I'm actually inspired. I'm excited by the momentum that uh, I'm seeing these days. That's Harrison Hayward, coordinator for the Hartford March for Science. We're talking about this event on where we live today. It's happening tomorrow, not only across Connecticut, but also, I think, believe in 500 other satellite locations and the nation's capital. On the phone with us as well is Yale student Sarah Smaga. She's a fourth-year PhD student in molecular biophysics and biochemistry and co-president of the Yale Science Diplomats. Sarah, so you're getting on a bus uh, early tomorrow morning, and who do you who do you hope will be at the, the nation's capital for this event? Uh, much like Harrison said earlier, I hope that we get all kinds of people. Um, I personally am really excited to see you know, a lot of scientists sort of getting out of the lab. Um, I hope that, you know, we get everyone from graduate students on up to Nobel laureates out there. Um, But I also really hope that there's, you know, some people in the community that we can talk to about our science. And I hope that, you know, people go to the teachings and that they um, sort of learn about all the cool things that science is doing for us and our community. 
Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel again. We're talking about the March for Science. Have you heard about it? Organizer Harrison Hayward is in the studio with me. Coming up, we're going to hear from someone in the science community who's making a point not to march, and we want to hear from you, too. That number, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we're talking about the March for Science in Washington, D.C. Tomorrow, Earth Day, are you marching in the nation's capital or here in Connecticut? You can join the conversation. Uh, also, I wanted to take a call now. Rasan is calling from Cromwell. Rasan, you're on the show. Good afternoon, Lucy, and uh, thanks for everyone. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Rasan. Your cell phone is breaking up. I don't know if you could try one more time. Maybe I'm not sure if you're moving or not. Yeah. You can. Oh, I don't think we can hear you right now. Um, I'm gonna put. I'm gonna hopefully uh, get to Rasan in a little bit. Um, but let me take another quick call. Uh, Gary's calling from Portland. Gary, you're on the show. Uh, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I'm just calling to um, commend the organizers, commend the people that understand the essential nature of communicating science, not just doing science. And to do that, you have to practice. You have to learn who your audience is. Uh, and these marches are enormous steps in, in that direction, uh, recognizing that it's all sciences, as uh, Harrison said. Um, and I just commend them and congratulate them on, on uh, what they've accomplished. And uh, we're going to get a good day of weather, I guess. It's supposed to be sunny tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And Gary, are you going to any of the marches in Connecticut? Uh, I was supposed to speak in um, in Hartford, actually, but I had a medical deal last week, and uh, my doctor says I can't, but I will be there in spirit. Well, thank you, Gary, so much for your call. And I wanted to get to our next guest uh, as we continue this conversation about the March for Science and if it's effective. Dr. Kevin Folta is on the line, professor and chairman of the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida, recipient of the 2016 Borlaug Cast Communication Award. Dr. Folta, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me on. This is great. Tell us about um, your decision. Are you marching? Well, I won't be marching. Um, I, I think it's really wonderful that the scientific community finally has decided that it's time to stand up for science. Uh, some of us have been fighting this for decades, this war on science. I think it's really unfortunate that it took the election of a, a presidential administration to mobilize people. And I think it has a really um, unfortunate political undertone that really will push people more away from accepting science because it's not the way that we have learned to communicate science effectively. Now, Dr. Fulta, uh, some would argue that uh, politicians often listen to anti-science agendas when they're forming policies. Uh, why not have the scientific community uh, get involved in the discussion uh, to promote you know, evidence-based uh, theory when they're thinking about policies that impact all of us? Oh, they absolutely should be. And the scientific community should be very much ingrained with their pol politicians and discussing how policy should be affected by evidence-based science. But the way to do that isn't to write on a pizza box, you know, climate, is, climate change is real, uh, you know, vaccines don't cause autism. It's to sit down with a pizza with your congressman and say, you know, let me share with you why I, as a scientist, what I understand to be good evidence and how this is evidence that should be playing into policy. We're committing uh, science communications error 101, that when you go out and, uh, and get in the face of people who um, you disagree with, it tends to make them dig in even harder. So that's the unfortunate side here. 
I want to have uh, Harrison Hayward respond. Uh, he's in studio with me. Harrison? Hi, Dr. Fulta. Thank you for joining us. Um, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think you, you bring up a lot of ver- very valid points that uh, coming out for one day, expressing your enthusiasm, and then falling back into complacency and, and not really doing anything tangible with that enthusiasm is a mistake. And that's why I think that um, our goal for this, this march isn't so much to uh, come out for a day, celebrate our support for science, and then be quiet. What we're, what we're hoping to do is use this as a launch pad for continued activism. We've seen historically there's a precedent for it with the civil rights movement and, and the women's march that we had earlier this year. Um, what we're hoping to do is, is to use this day to gather people, scientists and science enthusiasts from the community, get them into to one place where they can foster one another's passion for this subject. Um, we're going to be having a number of things uh, at the rally, like voter registration areas, uh, sign-ups for, or for, for a listserv where we can um, continue to remain informed and get in contact with your legislators who represent you in government, and um, to, to use this as a way to inspire and mobilize the scientific community. And Dr. Fulta, does that explanation, um, does that uh, ring true to you at all in terms of you know, at least getting people engaged, or do you feel like it still will fall short? Oh, no, I, I think it's wonderful. Anytime that we can get people engaged, it, for many scientists, it would be the first time that they would walk into their congressional office and talk to a staffer about why science is important. That's how we're going to create those the durable changes. And uh, we, it's about developing trust. And the public already kind of has a good favorable feeling about scientists, but they don't trust the science we do. And so the way to get them motivated isn't to go out and say, you know, what do we want? You know, trust. And what do we want it now? It's about a long, I and mean, it's a marathon and not a sprint. It's Maybe if it's the beginning of, of a longer effort, that's great. But I think we have to do this correctly in order not to alienate the people that we're hoping to motivate. And just to um, ask a, a follow-up, uh, Kevin Fulta, again, Dr. Kevin Fulta, who's a professor and chairman of the Horticultural Science Department at the University of Florida. Uh, what about class divide? We, I asked this earlier uh, to Harrison in, in a different way, but in terms of getting people that are, that are really interested in science and understanding the applications that it impacts all of us, uh, people, regular Americans who have jobs where they can't, maybe they can't get away for a march, or um, they haven't gone for advanced degrees, how do you get that, that message to them? Well, that's what's really cool that we've seen over the last three or four years in science communication has really been the mobilization of a nerd contingent. That's really fantastic. And they're the ones who are really picking up the ball and running with it. It's the science aficionados, the people who really appreciate what's happening in medicine and food and farming. And and they're picking up uh, the mantle on this and, and actually going in and fighting a fight better than the scientists do. Uh, scientists stay away from the confrontation. They're afraid, and sometimes for good reason. I mean, I've paid tremendous personal mm-hmm. toll for standing up for science. And people see that. And, and uh, they stay away. From, scientists tend to stay away from those kind of heated discussions or those necessary discussions. We've been leaving this up to kind of common folks who have a really ingrained interest in science, and they're doing a wonderful job. Scientists, they need to get going. I want to take a quick call now. We'll try Rasan and Cromwell. Rasan, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me this time? Oh, yeah, very good connection now. Go ahead, Rasan. Awesome. I'm actually going to turn my question into a comment. Um, Right now, I'm just really encouraged that the science, the environmental movement, the science movement, it seems to be moving more into a social justice movement as opposed to an independent movement. Because I think, you know, try 
trying to fight this battle on just a science level um, in a long run is not sustainable, but by actually looking at it as a social justice issue for all humanity and then on a more micro level, like what happens in Flint, Michigan, uh, we'll actually be able to draw more people into the movement and can make it more sustainable than just making it about the science and the numbers by itself. So I'm very much more encouraged just based on a comment uh, your guest just made. Well, thank you, Rasan, again for calling in. Uh, Deborah is calling from Newington. Deborah, you're on the show. Thank you. Hi. Great show. Thank you for having me. I just um, I wanted to just uh, throw some support uh, by showing up at the New Haven March because I, I can't believe all of the, the news stories about how climate change is not real. And it's it's just like it's very, very frustrating. I don't think Mother Nature really cares whether we believe in her or not. She's still going to do what she's going to do. And we need science to, you know, make sure that we have all the, the facts and not all these rumors flying around that are going to affect our policy decisions. Well, Deborah, thank you for your call. And I understand you're going to one of the marches in Connecticut? Yeah, I'm going to be in New Haven tomorrow, and I'm really looking forward to it. Um, you know, previously I, I had worked for the Department of Environmental Protection here in Connecticut, and um, I know that uh, the General Electric plant uh, right over the Massachusetts border that had poured all of that pollution over all these decades into the Housatonic River, you know, I was part of a project to clean that up. And so I'm very concerned about the, you know, proposed rollbacks, especially at the EPA, and, you know, taking away all of these protections for, for the environment. I know this is supposed to be a science march, but I still feel like it's it's also, you know, how do you disengage the environment that every one of us lives in from the scientific facts that drive our policy decisions? That, that's why I'm going to be there. Thank you, Deborah, for your call. Dr. Fulta, do you want to take that? Well, I think it's a really important point. And the caller before also the idea that social justice is really kind of underlying a lot of our modern science movements. Um, I think that's the key to effective communication is scientists need to share their values. We need to talk about why we do what we do, why we study what we study, why it's important that we are out um, uh, worrying about climate and farming and uh, how to feed more people in the developing world. Those are the things that will create the change because those will reach across the aisle. And those kind of values reach across to the people who may disagree with scientists. This is the way that we change hearts and minds. It's, It's a much more effective way, but a much more slow way. And Dr. Fulte, I mentioned you're a professor at the University of Florida. What are you telling your students? Uh, are they discouraged when they see policymakers, uh, you know, coming out with opinions and, and laws and, and rollbacks that aren't uh, that aren't connected to what the evidence shows? Oh, absolutely. And my students are outraged, and I love it. Um, the idea is is that we teach them the uh, the evidence, and we show them how to distill good evidence from poor evidence and poor quality evidence. That's our job as a scientific institution is to foster that critical thinking process. But now we're really focusing on the communication side. And how do we engage people who have inherent um, disagreements with science or scientists? And how do we do it effectively? Where do we do it? And that's been a real um, calling in the last really five or six years. How are we being more effective with sharing the science and uh, not just letting it die inside the laboratory? Some more community forums uh, instead of of a one-off march. Well, it's 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 that, but it's also a sustained effort of doing acts of good that are highly visible. 
Uh, in other words, what I'll be doing tomorrow is repairing the irrigation system at a middle school where the kids want to grow a garden but don't have a way to do it. That's going to be my investment in science on a Saturday, and I'll have dividends coming back to those children for decades to come. And I think that's the way we – and then I'm going to tweet about it, and I'm going to show pictures of me doing it, and I'll put it on a Facebook page. We're going to do good things. We're going to show people that we're doing good things and that we're scientists and we're doing these because we care about science, we care about food and farming, in my case, uh, climate, vaccines, all these issues. And I think that's the way we'll create durable change. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kevin Folta, professor and chair of the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida. We're going to look up your Twitter handle and follow you right after the show. All right. Thank you very much. And Harrison Hayward in studio with me, coordinator for the Hartford March for Science. Tell us uh, next steps after tomorrow. Yeah. uh, So next steps, uh, much like Dr. Volta was just saying, we need to create something sustainable here. So what we're going to do is at the event, we'll be registering people to vote who aren't currently registered to vote so that they can become an active part of of the legislative process moving forward. Um, We're talking with uh, the coordinators for the Women's March um, here in Hartford as well. One of them, Sarah Raskin, is actually on our team um, on ways that we can uh, continue to be active in the future. We're going to keep our um, attendees informed through uh, listserv emails and we'll hopefully inspire people to do things like run for office or lobby and continue being activists. Uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, someone's calling in. We won't be able to take their call. But uh, their question is, you know, how do you get that message to people who need to hear it, not this familiar echo chamber we're all in? You know, it's a, it's an interesting challenge. I think that um, you can do it through a number of ways. We have a photo campaign going called um, I Am Science, and it's just showing the ways that people who aren't in the laboratory are impacted by science. We've had a couple of wonderful stories uh, that have come out there. You can see them on our Facebook page. We're emailing um, And I think this march will reach a large number of people as well. Well, I want to thank Harrison Hayward, again, coordinator for the Hartford March for Science, just one of several happening in Connecticut. There's also a big one planned at the nation's capital tomorrow on Earth Day. Harrison, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Linda Sarsour helped organize the National Women's March. I spoke with her ahead of her visit to Hartford's Trinity College next week. That interview is next. Now, if you listen to Where We Live, you appreciate joining the conversation each day. Please support us. It's WNPR's Spring Pledge Drive. Here are some folks to tell you how. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, in 2004, Connecticut resident and U.S. Marine Michael Zakea had a job to do in Iraq, trained the 1st Iraqi Army Battalion after the U.S. disbanded the country's military post-invasion. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with Zakea, whose new book, Ragged Edge, details the challenges of leading a diverse group of Iraqis. What can the U.S. learn from a war that's still going on today? We'll find out on Monday. Right now, we're joining us on the phone is Linda Sarsour. She helped organize the Women's March on Washington. The movement sparked protests around the world after President Trump was officially in office. She's a Palestinian-American Muslim, a civil rights activist, and a resident of Brooklyn. She's coming to Connecticut next week to speak at Trinity College in Hartford. Linda, welcome to where we live. Thank you so much for having me. So looking back, are you at all shocked at, at what happened on January 21st? I I was just as shocked as everybody else as one of the national co-chairs. I mean, we organized the march um, not expecting there to be 450 sister marches across the country and across the world. We also organized the Women's March on Washington in D.C., expecting 200,000 people and about a million extra came. 
So it was really um, one of the most remarkable moments in my entire life. And I know that a lot of people who went to the Women's March said the same, including women who have been feminists and organizers for decades, said that it was a really special moment for them and really overwhelming um, and really a spark or a re-spark of the women's movement here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Why was this march so different? I think this march was different because there's a few reasons why. Number one, it was an opportunity for women of color to really be centered and help lead the kind of strategy and the messaging and uh, around the Women's March. And, and I was very grateful to be one of three women of color of the four national co-chairs. I think the second piece was that we didn't, as women, focus on what things people assumed we focus on, right? Equal pay and, and reproductive rights, that we led our country by saying, look, we are intersectional people. We are whole human beings and we care about racial justice and economic justice and religious freedom. We care about LGBTQ rights. We also care about reproductive rights and health care. So really being able to create a conversation in our country that says, don't you worry. You don't have to choose an issue that we can care about a lot of things all at the same time. Um, and I think the third one was, I mean, look, there was a motivating factor here. I mean, we had just witnessed the inauguration of a sexist, misogynist, you know, a whole lot of other things I don't want to say about him right now, but someone who really didn't align with the majority of our principles and values as Americans. And that really was a motivating factor for people to come out in public dissent and to stand in unity and solidarity. So Donald Trump helped, if that makes any sense. <laughs> At the same time, uh, his supporters, obviously he didn't get the majority vote, but he got millions of votes. What do you say to his supporters, uh, you know, Americans who believe in the policies that he's putting forth, who say, um, you know, they worry too much about identity politics taking front and center under President Obama? What do you say to them? I believe that there is only a very small minority of Trump supporters that actually subscribe to his anti-black, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant agenda. I think the majority of his voters were people who really voted on economic reasons, people who are from places like Ohio. I organized um, during the elections in Ohio and places like Virginia, uh, North Carolina, and I got to actually speak to some of these people. And a lot of them were unemployed. A lot of them were only one working person in the family, and they were struggling. And I understood that. And I told them, you know, look, you know, is racism not a deal breaker for you? And I understand that people in this country look out for their self-interest and the self-interest of their family. So I believe that the majority of his supporters are actually not racist. I think that they didn't think racism and misogyny was a deal breaker for them because they were really focusing on their personal interests. So I basically say to them now that it doesn't look like this president is going to help you economically, that you may want to join us on this side, the side of where we are standing for the most marginalized communities, including poor people, mm. and where we do want jobs and health care for everyone, and we don't want anyone to die because they can't afford to go to a hospital. And I think a little bit of those people are kind of coming to our side. I think people are really disappointed in what he's been doing um, for, the, for the last you know, 85 or 89 days that he's been in office. Mm. And what do you think, Linda, about um, the message of the Women's March and, and other of these events, uh, these moments of activism happening around the country? What message do you think it's sending to the policymakers, the politicians who've been in office for some time? Have they had their woke moment, so to speak? Oh, they definitely are getting their woke moment. I mean, including, as you saw, the Affordable Care Act. I mean, being able to kind of the Republican Party wasn't even able to bring the repeal vote to the table. And even on, issue, on, a, on the local level, you know, in New York State, we, one campaign that I've been working on for many years with my friends at the Justice League is the Raise the Age campaign and pushing Raise the Age. We also have now in New York State, for example, where I'm from, 
uh, free college tuition for families who make under $125,000 a year. That was something that, as a person who was a Bernie surrogate, I was a national surrogate for Bernie Sanders during the primaries. When we said free public college education, people said, you're crazy, you're idealistic. You know, you're a bunch of young people that have no idea what you're talking about. You know, you don't know how, how are you going to pay for these things. And all of a sudden, a lot of these proposals that young people in this country are putting forth, ending college debt, all of a sudden now are becoming actual policies in a lot of these states. Um, so I, I basically say to legislators across the country, they know election season is coming up. As you saw in Georgia, John Ossoff, which is a super liberal, progressive, democratic, you could even call him a democratic socialist, was, 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 was overwhelmingly w- winning a, now he has to go to a runoff, but during the election two days ago or three days ago, he was running an election and he was beating a whole bunch of Republicans and in a very red district in Georgia. So we actually are, are very confident as the Women's March, because as you know, we're now an entity and working on political advocacy work, that there will be a reawakening of democracy in 2018 as we win back one branch of government, hopefully the House or the Senate in particular the house i think that's definitely going to happen and we're already seeing the you know we're already seeing that already happening on the ground i i i see it and i foresee it for 2018. this is where we live i'm speaking with linda sarsour she's an activist a palestinian american muslim she helped organize the women's march on washington which motivated millions she'll be in connecticut next week to speak at trinity college in hartford what do you say about some of the criticisms of when we have these these very big marches, Linda, the people that, that may be left out or maybe they don't have the option to take time off from work and to travel uh, to be um, vocal in that sense. What do you say to those people? I say to those people that whether they are physically present at one of these large marches or not, that I hope that they see that their fellow Americans are doing this on their behalf. Look, there has never been a moment in any part of our history, whether it be during the women's suffrage movement, whether it be during the civil rights movement, where every single black person in America came out to the civil rights movement. It's always been a concerned few who have really made systemic change in our country. So um, we welcome people. Um, if you believe that you know women's rights are human rights, if you believe that all the residents of the United States should be treated with dignity and respect and that people should be able to worship freely and love who they want to love, I think that you're welcome. That's, this, is, this is our movement. But if you can't, for physical reasons, for financial reasons, come, I hope that you're, you see that your fellow Americans are also standing up for you, even though you may not be there. I wanted to talk to you about the climate in this country, uh, specifically against Muslims. Um, I mentioned that you're a Palestinian-American Muslim. Uh, we hear about hate crimes increasing, a lot of attention since the presidential campaign. Uh, but this is a climate that has been changing since 9-11, maybe even before. Can you talk about what your experience has been? I mean, I'm a New Yorker, and I unfortunately lived through the horrific uh, attacks of 9-11 and saw actually something very different. I saw people immediately come together in a place like New York. While we did have a few hate crimes that happened immediately after those events, but generally speaking, New Yorkers really band together um, in face of terrorism um, and, and the attacks that happened on our fellow Americans. Believe it or not, Muslims are facing a very worse time now than we ever faced, even weeks and days and months after 9-11. Uh, there has been an exponential rise in hate crimes in comparison to days and weeks and months after 9-11. The rhetoric coming out of elected officials and people in power has been absolutely outrageous, um, and it just continues to be more outrageous as we've watched people who have called Muslims rabid dogs. We have had uh, people questioning whether Islam is even a religion, and these are people who now have like 
very powerful positions in the White House, including someone like Steve Bannon, who is a very unapologetic Islamophobe, who has one of the most highest positions in the White House right now. Um, and, you know, being able to, uh, you know, see these policies unfold that, that we heard about during the campaign trail, like when they said Muslim ban, people said that's unconstitutional. No one would ever try to do that. Or, you know, things around uh, patrolling Muslim neighborhoods when we know for a fact, based on investigative reports by the Associated Press, that Muslim communities generally are already under unwarranted surveillance. Um, and then the, uh, the increase in bullying in the school, public school systems across this country, we saw a report come out of the state of California that uh, was that absolutely broke my heart to see how many young people who are identify as Muslim have, you know, have um, experienced some sort of level of bullying, anywhere from just name calling to actual physical assault, assault on in schools um, across the state of uh, California. And we know for a fact that's happening everywhere. Uh, so this is the really traumatizing. And in fact, I was at a Muslim conference just you know last weekend. And I had a, young, a little girl, nine years old, actually came and gave me a note as I spoke at this conference. And I read it later on in my hotel room. And she said, you know, to me, she said, you know, I'm so afraid to be Muslim and tell people that I'm Muslim and that I cry all the time. And I've been crying ever since Donald Trump became president. And she said, I feel more confident, you know, being at this conference with all these other Muslims. But and I posted this letter publicly on my social media accounts. And it really broke my heart that there are actual young Muslims in this country, little eight, nine year olds who have who are born and raised here, who love this country, go to public school and are afraid and actually sit and cry because they don't know what's to come and they feel like their safety has been compromised. And I don't think any American should want any child in this country to feel that way. What do you say to those people that are being targeted? I, my message is always very clear, and I tell in particular young people, I visit college campuses across the country, I visit public schools and Islamic schools, I say to young people that you must feel unapologetically who you are, unapologetically Muslim, and that you have every right to be unapologetically Muslim in this country, and that the people who hate us is because they don't know us. And if they knew you and they knew that you had aspirations and dreams just like them and you loved your family just like they love their family they wouldn't hate you this much. And being able to kind of bring young people into a conversation about what does it mean to be all of you and whole um, is something that I've had to have. I've had this conversation hundreds and hundreds of times over the past, you know, almost two years now. And it's very sad when I see young people get that spark in their eye, like, like, yeah, like, yeah, I'm going to be unapologetically Muslim and starting and actually starting to see young people in my community use that terminology unapologetically Muslim really is worth every moment that I sacrifice doing this work and traveling around the country. But I tell everybody, not just Muslims and on these college campuses, as you know, they're very diverse. I tell everyone, you be unapologetically who you are, because those who oppose you want you to break down. They want you to hide who you are. And we are not going to give the opposition what they want. We're going to be unapologetic about who we are. And what about you, Linda? I understand after the Women's March, you became the target of Islamophobic attacks. How did you respond? It's interesting because the Women's March was, as you know, organized by remarkable women across this country. Um, the, while we were the four national co-chairs, we had a team of about 60 people. And it was interesting that the, uh, the opposition, the right wing, the right wing Zionists, specifically targeted me. Um, and it's because, you know, I had the audacity to be a powerful, independent Muslim woman wearing a hijab that just helped organize the largest single day protest in U.S. history. And I defy every stereotype that Islamophobes have about Muslims. Um, I have breaking, broken a lot of barriers. I have worked in coalition. I'm intersectional, and that's my work, and my track record is really clear. And really, to be honest with you, I didn't have to do anything because 
my relationships came out. I had celebrities, elected officials, media outlets, other organizers, reputable national organizations like Amnesty International, the Black Lives Matter movement, climate justice movement, ACLU. I mean, every single person that I've ever had any relationship or did any work with or known my work came out in support of me and said, you know what? I stand with Linda. I march with Linda. You will not take this woman down. And they have been trying ever since, and it's not going to work because my track record is clear. The relationships I have built, the work that I have done is very clear in public. And unfortunately, the opposition just cannot fathom to see women of color, and in particular, a Muslim Palestinian woman resonating with large masses of people outside of her own immediate community. So I, I don't really respond to them. I just continue to do what I do. And as they continue to attack me, you know, as you know, the Women's March leaders, um, including myself, were named one of Fortune 50 greatest leaders uh, as a non-black woman. Um, I am now on the cover of Essence magazine, which is a true honor and blessing for myself to be recognized by a very highly reputable black magazine, a black cultural magazine, um, you know, so, that, so, the, so they can keep attacking. But my work is so clear that those who really recognize my work are giving me that voice and saying, you stay where you are. We got your back. I, I wanted to just ask you before we close, Linda, you obviously made a mark and you encouraged millions of women and others uh, to to leave their homes, to march in the Women's March. What's next? What's the next uh, movement? You mentioned briefly about the elections, the midterm elections in 2018. Uh, what's next for you? I'm going to write a book and really talk about my experiences as a you know Brooklyn-born Muslim Palestinian-American organizer and activist in the United States and the things that I've observed, but also being able to give some hope and inspiration to others as a mother of, you know, I have three children. So really being able to share my story in a way that informs and educates and gives people some action items to do. But I'm going to be focused on building the electoral strategy of the Women's March. It's what I do. It's my expertise. I enjoy working on elections. I enjoy the participation in democracy um, and really engaging the most disenfranchised. Um, so you will, you will see coming out of the Women's March, um, hopefully, is a very strategic electoral strategy that focuses on specific states where we will really say women brought the change that we needed. And so that's what you'll hear from us um, coming back. The Women's March is now a C3 and a C4. So we are an entity now that is going to engage in education and training um, and really uplifting not women activists, meaning traditional women activists, but women, as you said, who got up on January 21st and said, you know what, I want to join the masses. I have a voice. I have. I want to be part of a larger movement. And just to end by saying that people think the Women's March was organized by traditional organizers or seasoned organizers. And yes, three of us, me, Tamika, and Carmen, are seasoned organizers. This is what we do for a living. But in fact, the majority of organizers of the Women's March are, are, are were stay-at-home moms. They were public school teachers, social workers. They were yoga teachers. So we were able to show women across the country that it does not matter what your background is, does not matter what your occupation is, that we all have a role to play in this resistance right now. Well, Linda Sarsour, we thank you so much for joining Where We Live today. She'll be in Connecticut at Trinity College in Hartford uh, Thursday, April 27th. We'll have more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Linda, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today's show is produced by Lydia Brown. If you listen to Where We Live, we'd appreciate your support. It's WNPR's Spring Pledge Drive. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support Where We Live.